Welcome to A Drink with a Friend. I am Seth Haynes, and I am without Tish this week. Tish had something come up that is uh, pressing, and so she's going to take a little break. She'll be back next week. And so for the uh, discussion today, uh, I have recruited, we have recruited a wonderful professor of theology, um, Miles Wernz. Miles, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. Well, it is a delight to have you. And and as we start every conversation, tell us, what are you drinking? I have my trusty uh, my trusty work tumbler with me, and it is full of a nice 2022 vintage mm. of HB mm. coffee. Yeah. Oh, nothing but I, nothing I, but the best. Yeah. What's the what's the, the, what bouquet what, what bouquet are you sort of getting off at this morning? Uh it's a little I'm getting hints of a little uh little little burned little burned mm. at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little hint of warmed over too long, a little mm. just a just a waft of uh pan global coffee beans that don't remember where they were from that's that's kind of the it's a nice it's a beautiful vintage Mm, one of the things that i really missed about covid tide was uh the way that we didn't have a community coffee pot everybody was reduced Mm. to doing cure eggs so i was really happy to see the uh the office coffee pot return so i'm happy to drink whatever's in there there's nothing that that can quite capture that uh burned at the bottom Mm. uh feeling of like those that you know the taste of the bun burners yeah. Of the office coffee. That's the good stuff. Just can't. Yeah. You can't simulate it, man. You know what nope. I mean? Nope. Well, I am uh, drinking my favorite coffee in town, which is coffee from downstairs from Hailfellow Well Met. It's a it's an old English saying, but it's also a cafe because in Arkansas we like to do things completely uh, we like to complexify everything. And so it's called Hailfellow Well Met. It is an Onyx joint. Um, and so they brew Onyx coffee. So I'm drinking Onyx today. I am a very lucky human being in as much as I don't have coffee that forgets its origins downstairs. Um, this coffee has so, long forgotten where it was from. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, and I think that's kind of a good segue into uh, what we want to be talking about, coffee, <laughs> coffee that is endlessly without roots, <laughs> as that's it right. were. That's right. Yeah. So um, many people may or may not know you, but I, I've known you, I've known of you for years. This is actually maybe the first time we've ever really spent appreciable time talking um, but have, years and emailed. years, yeah, we've emailed some and corresponded over social media, but this is the first time that we've actually spoken person to person, which is really nice. That's right. That's right. We, yeah, we have some mutual friends and, uh, years ago, your mom actually contributed a letter to a project that I did called the mother letters for my wife, Amber. And oh, I, I still have that, that. letter. I Isn't that crazy? That. Yes. Oh, years good. and years uh, ago. Yes. I had forgotten yep, all about she, that. Yep. A wonderful human being is your mother, and so I'm not she surprised that she gave birth to a wonderful son. Um, but but tell us a little bit about yourself, and tell us a little bit about what you do. So I'm a Shreveport, Louisiana native, uh, but have lived in Texas most of my adult life. I uh, had a brief sojourn up in Arkansas to go to Washita Baptist University, um, quickly moved down to Texas after that. Uh, and did my MDiv and PhD at Baylor. Um, met my wife down there, Sarah, 
We have two kids, Elliot and Arthur, who are eight and five. Um, and yeah, for the most part, since about 2000, I've been in Texas. Uh, I teach right now. I'm teaching at Abilene Christian University as associate professor of theology, and I direct something called the Baptist Studies Center, which mm. is a longer story there, which we don't need to get into. But um, but yeah, I'm a seminary professor. I've been doing that since about 2009. I've taught in several different places in Texas and in Florida. And uh, yeah, I love what I do. I've gotten a lot, I've kind of have shifted in about the last five or six years to teaching less direct theology and a lot more Christian ethics, which has been a mm. nice surprise for me and mm. uh, something, I, something I deeply care about. Yeah. How do you, how do you mark the contrast between um, sort of theology and, and Christian ethics? You know, it's, there are some who want to conceive of ethics as a purely rational discourse. And I think there's ways to do that. I'm teaching a, I'm actually teaching a, a biomedical ethics course this semester, co-teaching that with um, a colleague over in the medical, uh, the medical building. Hmm. And so the way that biomedical ethics operates is usually is, is definitely more philosophical. It follows legal precedent. It has to account for um, sometimes a framework that I find uh, to be problematic from a theological perspective. And so I, it's interesting to me to try to bring, to try to reconcile kind of my own training, which is definitely more theological when I think about ethics, um, with the framework of biomedical ethics. But I mean, so there's some that want to mark off ethics as a rational, like a rational inquiry into goods and how we achieve, how we acquire those goods and what goods are, are proper for us to acquire and in what measure. Um, and so you can kind of carve those two off. I tend to blur the lines a, a lot more with respect to theology and ethics. I think of ethics as a mode of discipleship. And mm. so it's not the case, I don't think, that just because we have our theology straight that our ethics will necessarily follow. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's mm-hmm. lots of ways in which um, we can have perfectly orthodox theology and have never and kind of implicitly adopt modes of moral reasoning, which, um, yeah, are incredibly pagan. So I think that there's a, there's definitely a a need for Christians to do both to be informed theologically, but also have um, a good sense of how they're, how they are reasoning morally to be Mm. aware of kind of their assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, uh, you just said something that was really fascinating to me about um, we can have all the right theology, but then we can move in ways that 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 ethically or, uh, you know, uh, just the ways that, that, that we go about our lives, the way we move our body are incongruous. Um, mm-hmm. Give me an example of that, because I think, we, you know, we all say this a lot, but um, until we put, you know, sort of concrete examples to it, that help us uh, understand that and apply it to our everyday lives. It can be maybe a little bit of an esoteric practice. So yeah, give me an ex- yeah, yeah. Example That's of right. that. Um, okay, so let me let me take this example of Christians are those who are called to bear witness in the world. Right? Jesus tells us to go out and make disciples and baptizing and teach and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but there are all kinds of ways in which. Uh, and I'll use an example from like the the 19th century, there were discussions as to whether or not it was permissible to kidnap the children of others, of non-Christians, in order to baptize them into the faith. 
Um, <laughs> that would be a really great example of like having yes. an entirely orthodox theology that you were baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but yet willing to do things which would violate the integrity of family structure, which would uh, subject another person to violence, which would um, be legally dubious. Uh, this is so this this particular case I'm thinking of like comes around at the at the dawn of the nation state and so it violates like all sorts of like interstate law and these kinds of things. So that, I mean that's kind of one that that's kind of a, a high profile example, but maybe a different way to a different example from within that same orbit of Christian witness is that we want to bear witness to the faith, but sometimes don't take account of the ways in which we uh, we seek to do that. That if we're really concerned with evangelism or with making uh, with with telling people about Jesus, that some of the ways, some of the means we can take advantage of are morally questionable kinds of things. Mm. Um, so let me use the example here of is online church or the metaverse, is this something that Christians should make use of with respect to, or with, with respect to evangelism? Mm. It, if you don't, if you don't have any other kind of qualms about it, you could say, yes, we should make use of every means necessary. We should do the thing that Paul tells us to do to, you know, I, I became all things to all people that I might win some, right? All by any means necessary to, to, to be evangelistic. But when you start drilling down into kind of the nuts and bolts of things like the metaverse, you realize that you're, uh, it, it begin, you have to start asking questions of, uh, who is profiting when we emphasize evangelism in this way? Um, do all people have equally have access to this kinds of me? If you're going to like, shape your evangelism around this technology, you're implicitly assuming that all people have access to this technology, mm-hmm. which means in, in, in theory, you're going after everybody, but in practice, you're really just going after those that have the money and the means to be able to access mm. that kind of technology. Mm. Right. So it's, mm. um, this is where I, so there's all sorts of ways I think in which Christians, I think are well-intended in their, and, and, and orthodox in their theology, but, and well-intended in their ethics, but haven't given, kind of critical assessment to the ways in which we live out our lives of discipleship. So, yeah. Is there, I, I, I don't know the answer to this. Is this why I'm glad to have a, uh, a professor of theology and Christian ethics here? Is there some corollary um, back in the day of Paul, some technology, some mode, some place that he would have said, Hey, listen, you know, I'm 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 going to have this orthodox theology, and yet here are spaces in which um, it would make no sense for me to, to to go to preach, to share, to to move. Yeah, I think Paul primarily thinks about that question in terms of uh, not so much in like adoption of technologies necessarily, because I mean in Paul's day the technology options are fairly limited. You've got the written, uh, you've got the mail system, you've got the uh, the use of stylus and papyri and all that kind of stuff. So he's writing letters. I think for Paul, that question cashes out in terms of um, the kinds of context in which Christian witness is compatible and incompatible. So mm. maybe one way to think about that for Paul would be something like, 
is it permissible for a Christian to go to the pagan temple in order to bear witness to Christ? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so for Paul, that's wrapped up with sexual immorality. It's wrapped up with the worship of the pagan gods. It's wrapped up with, um, in lots of cases, unjust financial practices that discriminated against the poor. If you're going to certain temples, uh, they have fertility cults. And so you're probably going to have to have sex with somebody in order to go, like to be kind of an ordinary part of the wor of worship. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're called to bear witness in all times and all place, you know, in all times and all places, but maybe that would be a context in which not like the principle of by any means necessary doesn't really apply that there's a lot of damage that the Christian might actually incur upon themselves in doing that. Mm. So I think that brings me to what I personally want to talk about this week, which is your newsletter from yesterday. Okay. Um, no, so many, many people um, listening who know of your work will know that you write a newsletter on Substack. Um, it is very good. I vouch for it. I don't know that my vouching for it means anything hey, other than I, I like, I like it. Vouching for it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I'll vouch yep. for it. Uh, I like it. I enjoy it. I, I read, I comment sometimes. Uh, it's good stuff. Um, but yesterday there was this, there was this one line in it. And I, so I want you to kind of talk us through what you're, what you're writing about, but there was this one line that I really, it just popped off the page at me. And you talked about how we are a people that are quote, endlessly without roots. And you talk about this in, in, in several contexts, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that idea of being endlessly without roots and, 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 and also maybe how that applies in this, in this space that you're, you're talking about with, with Christian ethics. Yeah. So in the newsletter for yesterday, um, it was kind of, it was part of a, a writer's workshop thing that I'm, I'm finding myself needing to do this, this fall, just because I have a lot of other I have some some writing commitments I need to meet, and so I'm I'm working some of this out first, mm -hmm. like first through the through the newsletter. Um, so there's a long discourse within uh, within war and peace thinking about the nature and justifications of war. What are the conditions under which we can go to war? What is just behavior within war? How should Christians think about it being involved in war? All these kinds of things. But frequently what gets left out of all these conversations is the impact that war has upon um, the environment and ecology. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a Catholic archbishop of the Diocese of Santa Fe, I believe, um, who wrote a long, kind of, a long letter on the way in which uh, nuclear war had, had is having ecological effects upon his diocese in New Mexico. Mm. Um, he describes the way in which, so this is, this is his, his, his diocese includes uh, Los Alamos, mm -hmm. which is where most, a lot of the nuclear research in America, in North America happens. And so he talks about the way in which um, there's more nuclear waste there than in, in any other part of the country that it's infiltrated the groundwater, that it really gets, um, it's really having like really bad material effects upon his own, his own diocese. And mm -hmm. so it just emphasizes that when we think about war, sometimes we think about it as not really taking place anywhere in particular. We get caught up in kind of the reasonings for how we should do it and when we should do it and if we should do it. 
Um, and we just kind of neglect that it leaves deep scars on particular places. Mm. And so our reasoning about war often takes place in the abstract, forgetting that it actually affects and impacts particular kinds of like geographies and ecologies and places. Um, and so the letter yesterday is the, the letter for the last two times or the one that's coming out tomorrow. And then probably for a couple more is going to kind of, is just digging into this question of what does it mean to be from someplace and what are we actually, what are we obligated to what, like what, what obligations do we have to particular places? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, yeah, I think it's, I it's easy for us to, to think of ourselves as not being from any place in particular, but there's something very good and right about committing to particular places and particular people over the long haul. Um, I think sometimes when we think about, to go back to kind of our conversation on Christian witness, when we think about Christian witness, we think about international missions or kind of the itinerant ministry of Paul as being the norm. But I don't think that scripture necessarily commends that. Mm. I think that Paul is kind of the exception to that, that you have to have Paul's, but what Paul does is he always leaves behind particular congregations in a place that he mm-hmm. sees that as being more the norm and himself as being the exception to the norm. Mm. Um, so there's something about Christian discipleship that, that I think requires for us to be committed to particular places and geographies over a long period of time. Yeah. And, and as you're saying this, I'm reflecting on my own sort of experience in online spaces. I think there was sort of a, almost a sweet spot um, mm-hmm. in online discourse and online places. It was probably in the late, or, you know, 2008 through, I don't know, 2013 or 14, maybe before mm-hmm. it, it, it felt so gross and, and vitriolic all the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember in those spaces, um, we use the terms like online community or he's, you know, that's, that person is my friend or, um, uh-huh. and, you know, I may have, I may have never met the person, you know, like mm-hmm. you and I, obviously we've, we've engaged several times on email. Um, I have a letter from your mom. Um, <laughs> you know, so I mean, I mean, in a sense we're connected, right. But we've right. never lived yeah, in the yeah, same yeah. community. We've, we've uh-huh. never dealt with the same local problems. We've never had the same, you know, local electoral issues um, pop up. Mm. The issues that are in my life are not ubiquitous to yours and vice versa. Um, mm-hmm. But there was a space and a time in the internet where it sort of felt like uh, we could trade community, real in-person community mm-hmm. for this sort of like online version of that. Um, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the pros and cons, because I think there are some pros, right? But, yeah, but, there, but, yeah. but there have to be pros and cons here when we're talking about a Christian commitment to community, and then we're talking mm-hmm. about these sort of virtual spaces. Yeah. So I think that, um, man, I just feel I'm, I'm really of two... Maybe not of two minds, maybe of like a mind and a half when it comes to things like uh, <laughs> it's like I have. I'll, so I'll give you the like the half mind, which is like the the one cheer for. Uh, so it's like a like out of three cheers, I'll give you like one cheer for for virtual. <laughs> okay, that's um, fair. So virtual communities, I think, have the benefit of of helping people of like mind to find one another and to exchange ideas and to really help you feel like you're not you're not entirely crazy that there mm-hmm. are people who share the same sorts of concerns yeah. or interests yeah. or um, they just help you find 
like quote unquote your people, the yeah. people who are interested in the same sort of stuff as you, and you don't have to explain why this thing is so great or uh, why you know why this band is amazing or why this sports team is uh, the best of all possible sports. Like you don't have to explain yourself, right? Yeah. So there's some benefit to that, but where I think the language of community gets slippery is it it effectively organizes our social commitments around this particular thing. So mm-hmm. that if this particular thing were to change, then the community mm-hmm. effectively dissolves, mm. right? So we see this maybe happening in church life a lot, that mm-hmm. the church will get really into the Enneagram or they get really into um, advocating for the unborn or they get really into... Uh, whatever your particular like thing is, whatever your mission is, whatever your yeah. like point of organ, like that we're all in college together, where it's all an age group thing, or it's you know pick your pick your organizing yeah. feature. Yeah. Um, but when that changes, that's when you find the church uh, dissolving or going through some sort of identity crisis or undergoing a split. Or people just start wandering off and doing something else, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was never really about, I think, and this is the hard, this is, this is where I think it's, it's hard medicine. Because that grouping was never really about the other people. It was always about this thing that you held in common or this idea mm-hmm. or this political advocacy or this, uh, this whatever, fill in the blank, this, this yeah. stage of life that you were in, right? Yeah. Um, think about, um, the way in which, for example, a lot of church age group ministries are grouped. That you have people who, the kind of the default mode within a lot of like small groups within church is, if you're, uh, if you're married, it's, you're, you have kids in common. Well, yeah. what happens if you're like, you know, what happens if you're 30 something and you're married, but you don't have kids? Yeah. Or what happens if you're 30 something and you would otherwise fall within this group, but you're not married, Mm. right? You just become this weirdo who doesn't really have anybody to belong to. And so I think churches are very susceptible to the same sort of like organizing ourselves around common interests. But when that interest changes, that's when the whole thing falls apart. Mm. Whereas Christian community, I think, and you see this in the letters of Paul all the time, is built not around these common interests, or these common, even life experiences or common stages in life, but they're built around the communion that is in Jesus Christ. That Christ is the one who draws together Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. Um, and he has to work through all of, all of the hard stuff that comes when you try to organize a social group, not around a particular stage in life or a particular interest, but around Jesus because mm. those groups don't necessarily have anything natural in common with one another. And they might mm. deeply disagree with about with one another about important stuff. Mm. But Paul is, is persuaded that, yeah, we got to work through this because we're bound together ultimately, not by our special interests, but by, uh, but by Jesus. So, so that's where I think online community really struggles is that it tends to aggregate us around particular interests Mm. Um, and the, so that's my one cheer for it. The two, but the other, the other two thirds of that, I think, is we need to use those as a way to springboard into offline relationships and mm. offline communities, which expand our connections to one another beyond maybe the particular thing that we share in common, and to 
like all the stuff that we maybe even disagree about. So, so tell me what that would look like in your mind. Yeah, I think it. If, I think it means in practice in churches considering it like first doing some diagnosis. What are the ways in which we are fostering our connections to one another? And do those have like a really limited lifespan? Mm-hmm. Um, and then being willing to say, okay, so if that's what's binding us together, what would it look like to do something different? It doesn't mean I don't think, and I talk about a lot of this in my, in my book from isolation to community. It doesn't mean like abandoning the things that like we do as normie Christians, like praying and reading our Bibles and um, going to worship. But it just means being attentive to the ways in which um, those kinds of things can creep in very unexpected, like that we can, we can be, we can be operating along those logics of interest groups um, very easily and maybe unconsciously, but just being aware Mm. of those. So in practice, it may mean um, when we're getting people together in small groups, like not gathering people according to uh, age, like maybe, maybe churches don't need to have things like youth ministries. Mm. Maybe churches don't need to have things like age group divisions within, uh, within their discipleship forms that maybe we need, because those are implicitly the things that we assume draw people together. But, Again, the model of, of scripture seems to be much more organized around what do we have in common in Christ and not what do we have in common as, you know, as a men's group or as a senior adults group. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I guess uh, to tease that out a little bit, it seems like there are, and this is just, you know, I don't know, my maybe my lived experience, but it seems like there's, there's some utility in having some organiza- organizational principle around mm-hmm. gender, yeah. age group, or yep. whatever, you know, yep. for discipleship purposes, whatever. I mean, obviously, my 18-year-old deals with very different things mm-hmm. than I do, and we mm-hmm. both deal with very different things than my 10-year-old, right? And so, right. Yep. so certainly, there, there, it seems like there's some benefit in having, you know, some grouping, but mm-hmm. but is what I hear you saying, like, is in as much as we organize the entire church around those things that change, that move, right. those identities that yep. shift, it's 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 terribly uh, fragile. Yeah, it is, and it creates churches within churches. Um, mm-hmm. You have portions of portions of the body that you identify as my church, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that those, and this is why I think it's it's important to maybe give it one cheer out of three, is to say, yeah, yeah. these have. These have some purpose and these have some benefit, um, but all, they can't be the ultimate. Like you can't stop there. Yeah, that maybe that yeah. you begin there, and that that's a. I think that's a natural way in which we we begin to group together in crowds or in like affinity groups. Mm. But I think that Christian community requires us to to move through that and to recognize, yeah, that there are, that the body is comprised of different gifts, and that some of those some of that means being in the presence of those that I don't necessarily, to use Paul's language, I don't necessarily want to honor or I don't yeah. want to be if associated with, but that's part of being a part of the body yeah. um, is learning to appreciate those gifts that you may not see as gifts immediately. So I, I, I want to, this may feel like a little bit of a left turn. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know that it is, but but I'll share a, a little bit of my experience. Like as a kid, right? I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, pretty large Southern Baptist church in Fort Smith, Mm -hmm. Arkansas. 
I remember the first time I heard about Calvinism, right? Which is, okay. you know, for those uh-huh. of you who don't know about Calvinism, it's unimportant. It's just, uh, for purposes of this story, <laughs> it, it's simply a theological construct, right? And I remember right. hearing this theological construct and then understanding that there were a great number of people in our church who who sort of adopted this and a great number who did not. Um, and there were sort of two large Baptist churches in town, but but you really went to one of those two churches and neither pastor really took a stand on Calvinism, so to speak. It was like there are sure. some who are in this camp and some who weren't. And mostly yeah. you went to one church because it's where your family had always gone. It was on one side of town and you went to the other church because it's where your family had gone. And it was always on the other side of town. It seems to me, or it seemed to me that I felt a shift. You know, I was a Southern Baptist minister for a year in the early mm-hmm. 2000s. And it seemed to me that I began to see a shift in those early 2000s where now congregations were sort of wholesale becoming one or the other. Mm. And instead of sort of picking your church by where your family had gone or where you lived, all of a sudden you were beginning to say like, oh no, this dude over here is Calvinist, so I'm going to go to his Baptist church. Or it was like, oh no, this guy's not, so I'm going to go to his church. And it seemed like, um, you know, that that I, I watched that entrenchment sort of grow and grow and grow to the extent that it really mm-hmm. did feel like, again, a group of people who were endlessly without roots because they were sort of chasing their affinity, right? right. I, I don't know if this is fair, a fair character. I don't, first of all, I don't know if that's a fair characterization. It's just how I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if this is a fair characterization, but I feel like in the age of the internet, what I see happening, um, it, it continues to be that way, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, I found this group of people online who believe X, Y, and Z. Maybe it's mm-hmm. something, some very progressive version of Christianity. Maybe it's some QAnon version of Christianity. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now it's not only, uh, you know, you're not coalescing those groups online, but then those people are actually going out and seeing if they can find that affinity group in their local community to connect with that affinity group. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, if you're seeing this, what your, what your thought is um, with respect to this um, and embodiment or, or rootedness. I think, yeah. I think particularly about nationalism in that, in that context. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're right. I hadn't put that together with a lot of the, I mean, you can kind of even see it in, I mean, so you were, you were Baptist long enough to like know about the worship wars and kind of all yes. that kind of stuff yeah. where yep. different congregations have different worship styles and it becomes kind of a hallmark of the congregation. I mean, I think that this, this question of uh, like the theological positions on Calvinism or Arminianism or something like that becomes kind of just an, it becomes a different version of that. Um, and that no one really, well, I don't want to say no one, but there are there are few who hold to like the hardcore version of Calvinism. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that that all Christians hold to a notion of God drawing us, mm-hmm. which at a, in a more exaggerated form becomes like a hyper Calvinist position. Yeah, but this at the, you know it's hard to read the Bible and not come away with some notion of you know God starts with Israel. Not because Israel really had anything to offer God, but because it <laughs> because God said, "Right, you Abraham, you yeah. that's it, like that's it." Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, and we can kind of get into the meta. You can get from there into the metaphysics of of Calvinism, but 
I, this this notion that God calls people is just across the it's across the board. It's not you know the exclusive property of Calvinism. It's just kind of mm-hmm. Christian theology. Um, and so there's a lot of the way that I think about Christian theology in that respect is that there are some there are some w- things which I think become uh, hard enough that they do create some. Im- important distinctions between Mm. denominations. Mm. Uh, So to kind of use my own, my own, my own place here, uh, I'm Baptist. We hold to adult baptism. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of Baptists, not necessarily myself, but a lot of Baptists will say that when you're, when we're, when we're taking Eucharist, that it's in memory, but there's nothing particularly going on. And so Mm -hmm. those become like distinctive things that do become, kind of incompatible between Baptists and Catholics. Um, yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot that's, there's, there's plenty more that is shared across, uh, across those lines that, you know, I don't think you necessarily need to start, you know, you don't need to, to, to divide out over these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that sometimes these theological markers can be just as, uh, that can be another version of identity groups or kind of yeah. affinity groups. So yeah, yeah. that we yeah. find ourselves committed to the idea, but not necessarily to the people next to us who also love Jesus. And we are not going to agree on some of the nuances of the faith, but we agree with like the basic contours of the faith. Yeah. So yeah. Um, what does it mean to live in community with people that you disagree with um, that don't necessarily uh, agree with all kind of the finer points of your ident- your chosen affinity group? Yeah. Yeah, it would seem to me that that would, you know, as you as you cast that vision, how do you live in community with people who, you know, you sort of wrestle with definitely different doctrinal stances or different things you believe. Yeah. Um, but how do you live in peace and in love with one another? That seems like uh, one version of Christianity. It feels like what I'm seeing often now is another version where that central core that we can all Mm -hmm. agree with has been displaced by something else typically, which is, is political activism. And a lot of times I see that really fomented online Mm -hmm. in a disembodied space and then sort of brought back to the embodied space. That's right. The, the, the physical, our physical communities are now taking their cues from the online ones rather than mm, yeah. our online life taking its cues from our physical, like our, in our physical communities that yeah. I think the inverse is now happening. So yeah. in that sweet spot that you described in, in like that, that early two thousands on through like maybe 2010, 2012 of like the internet mm. life that I think that we still had physical communities that were capable of like when we engaged online, we knew that it was real people. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. we had enough of an on, like an offline presence and offline lives to know that, yeah, you don't behave like an a-hole to somebody who's <laughs> online because they're, they're <laughs> right. an actual real person. Right. right. But now the opposite is happening in that our habits of dealing with people in real life and in physical communities are taking their cues from our digital habits. And so all we see is avatars, all we know are affinity groups. And so then that just has really pernicious effects on how we actually live together in physical communities. So, yeah. um, Yeah. I think it's flip flop now. And so that's, that's part of what you're seeing, I think. Yeah. And that would seem to me again, to go back to your earlier discussion of the difference between 
uh, theological orthodoxy and mm-hmm. Christian ethics in the wild, so to speak. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that one can have your confessions sorted out, but if your habits are being formed in a way that is, uh, that are malicious, and you're not even, maybe we're not even aware that they are malicious. And then we begin to just practice that in, in our, our face-to-face relationships in some pretty, pretty malicious kinds of ways. So. Yeah. And I think one of the big issues, at least the way I see it, one of the big issues, particularly with my sons, right, is the more you engage online, the less mm-hmm. you are in real life community, the more you are isolated. Mm-hmm. And and again, you, you named it earlier, you've written a book from isolation to community. I feel like we're in a season of life and an epoch that is more isolated than ever. I think there's mm-hmm. the pandemic isolation for sure. Then mm-hmm. there's this sort of technological isolation. I'd be Mm -hmm. curious, how would you recommend that we see our lives, look at our lives, um, and and sort of make that repair from isolation uh, to community? I think that maybe one way to repair is just to spend more time um, in physical face-to-face contact. Uh, The difficulty with that is now that so many of our physical communities are interwoven with these digital technologies because that's where we spend most of our, that's where we spend an increasingly amount like a part of our day. Yeah. So, because, uh, so we don't want people to feel weird when they come to church or weird when they come to these communities. And so we bake in a lot of the dimensions of online life into our physical gatherings already through screens and live screens and online chats and, you know, ways for you to, you know, transmuting church into an online version. Like we don't want people to feel weird about it. And so we just, rather than doing the thing where we critically assess that maybe this, maybe this is all bad for us. Maybe we need to step back from our online presence pretty significantly Mm -hmm. and see what it's Mm being doing to us. Rather than doing that, we just integrate it more and more into our physical spaces because that's what people are used to. Um, So I think the first step is just, uh, yeah, doing the experiment where you disengage from a lot of these things or really pull back from a lot of the online forms and just see what happens. That maybe uh, maybe the answer is not to more fully integrate uh, digital apparatus or digital forms of life into our physical existence, but maybe the, maybe we need to pull back in order to be able to maybe prudentially uh, engage these things rather than seeing them as necessary in all times and all places. Um, so I was, I was talking with a church earlier this spring. We were, we were, they had me down to talk about kind of digital life and how we should think about digital culture. And the, the salute, this is a church that doesn't do a whole lot. They don't have like a, it's a, it's a good sized church, but they don't have like a digital campus. They don't have like a digital mm. pastor. They don't really do a whole lot of, I mean, they like televise their service, but it's not a big production kind of thing. Yeah. And so my, they're, so they're in a pretty good place. And so I just told them, okay, so the thing you need to do, I think, is to uh, lock down your live stream. Like, mm. don't make it open access so that anybody just kind of like grazing by can jump in and feel like they're part of the church. But, you know, make it so that if you're going to participate in this particular way, uh, you are intending to participate as a precursor to actually coming face to face, right? Mm. Um, use it in a very prudential kind of way. Uh, have one camera that's kind of like it's not real fancy. It's just kind of like 
maybe it's on like a bad angle. Maybe the sound quality is terrible. <laughs> like make it as un like have it <laughs> so that people can access it if they want to, but make it as unattractive as possible. Yeah. So that it yeah. actually pulls people away from the screen and away from digital, like the digital ecosystem and into these physical face-to-face relationships. Mm. Man, that's amazing. I've never heard anyone say, hey, do something of crappy quality so that yeah, uh, if people want it, it's fine, but it's not yeah. going to be the draw. Yeah, if you want to, I think that there's definitely a place. There was a there was an article by Tish Harrison Warren that she took a lot of heat for about this question of live streaming in church. Um, and I think she went a little too far in that she kind of dismissed some of these concerns about access. That Yeah, there are people who are homebound. There's people who are sick and are traveling that want to be a part of the community and you need to find ways for them to be a part of that. Yeah. And I think that there's definitely a place for that. I just think it needs to be like, if that's what it's for, then we need to calibrate it toward that, not yeah. toward high production quality so that people feel like they're having the exact same experience just watching something as they would have when they're in like in person. Right. Yeah. We need yeah. to remember that there is a distinction there. Um, and to kind of like to think about that when we're doing our digital tech. So if somebody is, is, you know, says to you, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm going to do what you suggest. I'm going to do this experiment. Mm-hmm. I'm going to disengage uh, mm-hmm. from an online community. And yet I don't really have strong local mm. community. Maybe I'm new yeah. to town or maybe yeah. I just don't, don't get out very much, or maybe I just am not comfortable around people. How mm. would you suggest mm. that people go about sort of building that community? That's a wonderful question. And this is where, this is, this is where I never want to go. Like when I talk about like the one cheer for digital community and the two cheers mm-hmm. for physical, like I never want to go all the way and say three cheers for physical and like no cheers because I do think that there's some utility here. Um, I think that you, uh, I think that it just takes, it takes the culturally we, we're losing the ability um, absent like, well, you don't really even see it that much like in bars anymore that usually when people show up, like you used to think of like bars as the place where you just kind of met strangers and you could have conversations with people that you didn't know. But I don't think that even really happens much anymore. Yeah, no. Nope. Like that you go into a bar and people are talking with the people that they came with. Yeah. But they're not, you know, you're not really meeting anybody new. Um, I just think it we're it just takes recovering and being like having that those people have got to be brave in a way that I don't have to be. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, um Taking the taking the risk of kind of entering into conversation with a complete stranger, yeah. uh, of putting yourself out there and kind of joining, like going to going to groups where you don't know anybody, um, and w- being willing to be that uh, that that person that is engaging with folks that are not kind of that they don't already know. Um, I just think it takes a lot of bravery, and I think it takes a yeah. lot of courage for folks to be able to do that. And I also think that that's where the good stuff is. 100%. That that's where we, we truly find ourselves coming alive in ways that we are, I think, intended by God to, to come alive. Yeah. So, yeah. The embodied, yeah. the embodied experience. Yeah. And to not, I think to not, not let, uh, online kind of permutations of that substitute for something else. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Miles, this has been a fantastic conversation. I don't think we're finished here. So whenever uh, <laughs> Tish is, whenever Tish is yeah, back up and around, absolutely. we ought to have you back on. This is this yeah, is phenomenal. Please, I would love it. I'd love it. I'll bring something better next time than a uh, burned over coffee. So, uh, that's okay. I mean, just keep keep I'll keep with a... what makes you happy, man. No, this doesn't make me happy though. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. purely useful. It's purely Fair useful, enough. but it's uh, it's it's not necessarily bringing me joy. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, on that note, we like to end every episode with one thing that is sort of bringing you goodness, beauty, or joy, truth, Mm. beauty, goodness in your life. could be something you're watching, something you're reading, uh, something that you're cooking, even uh, listening to, whatever. Um, So you have anything? I just finished rereading David James Duncan's The Brothers K, Mm. which you've read it, right? No, you, no, it, it's a, I, there's a funny story. There's a funny story Seth. behind the. I know. There's actually oh, a funny story. You know, I've been given that book four different times by four oh, different people, gosh. and I just I I haven't read it yet. Oh my gosh! It is that book is magic, and I don't use that term lightly. It is just almost as perfect a novel as you could possibly hope to have. Wow. It's, uh, I, I mean, I've read, I was an English, ma- I was a lit major in college. I have read a lot in my life. And yeah. there have been, I can count on maybe not even one hand, the number of books that I've come away from just feeling like this is a miracle of a book. And I'm so wow. glad that it's in the world. And Brothers, okay. the Brothers K, the Brothers K by David James Duncan is absolutely at the top of that list. Well, I'll have to read, read it, that book then. Read it again with a group with a with a book club group that I've had for a couple of years, because one of them is moving out of town. Kester, if you're ever listening to this, man, I wish you weren't moving, but you're. It's you got to <laughs> do what you got to do. So he wanted to read it again before he left, and so it's it's like five hundred something pages, and so it's yeah. not a short read, but yeah. it is amazing. It's just yeah. absolutely amazing. It's my vote for the great American novel. Oh like, wait, wait. Like it replaces East of Eden? Come on, man. You know, I would put it I would put it neck and neck with East of Eden with Lonesome Dove. Okay. And great, Brothers K. Great, great I think pick. Moby Dick. Right. Like those okay. those four would be like my votes for the great American novel. Yeah, um, East of Eden is my brother's K. It's the book that I read multiple times and keep East reading. of Eden is uh, it's same. It's just an amazing book. It's like a yeah. It's like they just caught lightning in a bottle and they yeah. just couldn't like they wrote other good stuff. But man, there was only but that, be was one the one. Like that. that was man, the one that was man. East of Eden, the opening two pages of East of Eden. Every time, every time I read it, I cry Gosh. and I can't explain to oh. you why yes. other than just the way he paints with words is like that's it's so masterful. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. That book is yeah. that book is phenomenal. Yep. Yep. I love so it. That's well, I, me. I, that's what's bringing me uh, a lot of truth and beauty. It's it's about it's about God. It's about baseball. It's about families. So if you if you love those three things as I do, um, then this is like you could not ask for a better a better book. So well, I'll definitely read it. You know, what about, we're moving. What about you? We're. Thanks. I'll tell you, we're moving. So that book is packed. So I'll report back. Maybe we'll have you on after I read it. Um, All right. Yep. So, so yeah. So right now I am reading a book called Candy House by Jennifer okay. Egan. Okay. Um, it's a 
it's a novel that was released this year. Um, it it kind of pulls on some of the threads in the, that that we've been tugging on today. Just embodiment, uh, the commoditization or commodification of uh, memory, of personality, social mm-hmm. media, um, mm-hmm. the disembodied experience. And I'm only fifty okay. ish pages in, mm-hmm. um, okay. but so far, and I've read a few novels this year. So far, it's. It's the fastest read. I mean, I mm-hmm. cashed those fifty pages out really quickly the other night. Mm-hmm. I just thought, oh, okay. this is this is really well done, and it's it moves okay. fast. So, um, okay. so that's what I'm reading. And and I Candy think, House. Um, all right, yeah, Candy House. I think it's worth a read. I think it again going back to your you know conversation about isolation, community, embodiment, disembodiment. It's it's all mm-hmm. right there. So yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, Miles, thank you very much uh, for being with us. I would. Uh, Tell everyone, go get, just go to Amazon and type in his name, but grab a copy of From Isolation to Community. Um, and then I want you to tell them where they can connect with you. So, as much as I, so we've been bashing social media, you can actually find me on social media on uh, Twitter and on Facebook. Um, I have an Instagram, but it's locked down. And so I kind of restrict it to people I actually know. So I don't let, like, it's pretty smart. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have pictures of my kids and stuff, and so I'm like, eh, it's, that's just what that's for. Yeah. Uh, so I'm out there on Facebook and Twitter. I don't really do a whole lot of either one these days, but I'm there. Uh, but I do I do write a Substack. Um, you can find it at Christian Ethics in the Wild um, is the name of it. So if you're on Substack, you can search for it. And so put that out a couple of times a week, and it's always some, some question within um, kind of looking at the the way I frame it is I, I don't do culture wars. Um, we, we go slow and boring, lots of, lots of slow and boring stuff, but, but I, w- I wouldn't the... say boring. I wouldn't say well, boring. It's, I, it's I never, find bo- it really, it's true. really good. It's never boring. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but slow. Um, the Christian moral life is what it's all about. So, yeah, it's a very thoughtful piece. So I, I enjoy reading it. I think everyone out here will, We'll enjoy reading it too. So thanks for being with us. We we couldn't be more excited to to host you and we hope to hear from you again. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Would love to come back and chat about anything else. Oh, we'll make it happen. You can find me at sethhaines.substack.com. We'll have all the show notes in the link for this episode so you can find all of Miles' work. Uh, you can find his Twitter page, which is is just as thoughtful as his Substack. Um, and you can find everything we talked about right here. So we look forward to hearing from you. So if you uh, want to drop us a note, feel free to do that. You can also find us um, and, and buy us a cup of coffee or two. We'll leave a link down there for buy me a coffee. Um, and as usual, we're grateful you guys have uh, come around. So we'll talk to you again in two weeks. <laughs>